Hello and welcome back to another episode of Doom to Bloom podcast. Today we have a special guest, Julie from Through the Glass Recovery, and she's going to talk to us about her journey of healing and recovery through addiction. Hi, Julie. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing really good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being a guest. And you, I'm, I'm very honored to have you as a guest because you are one of the first handful that actually reached out when I started deciding that I wanted to have guests. So I appreciate you right back. Yeah, absolutely. Super excited to be here. And just before we jump into your story, Julie, I always like to ask my guest kind of where they're guesting from. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so I am in a tiny little town in Western Colorado. Um, I actually live on a little 40 acre ranch. We have horses and cows and goats and chickens and all of that stuff. And um, I am a wife and also a mom of two kids. I have a teenager and a young adult who doesn't live at home anymore. Sounds like, like so peaceful. The image in my head just looks like a dream. (laughs) (laughs) Some days it's a dream and some days it's a lot. Um, But yeah, I I wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for anything. That's amazing. And I feel like that's a perfect segue into your story of how you got to be living on a ranch. Yeah. Um, so I think I'll just kind of start at the beginning here and and talk about how I ended up here and doing what I do. Um, my story, obviously, so I my, my story is, is all about overcoming alcoholism, alcohol addiction. Um, it very much is centered around shame and perfectionism and self-worth and I've come to realize I've, I've been blessed to have so many amazing conversations with other people in recovery and I've come to realize how very common it is for women especially to struggle with shame and perfectionism and self-worth and a lot of times it is kind of the background of everything that's going on and why we become addicted to things. And it takes a while to actually recognize that. It took me a long time to figure out what battle it was that I was fighting. Um, I struggled with, you know, the the low self-esteem and depression and anxiety. And that was all at the heart of my addiction, but I didn't realize it for a long time. So those two things go very hand in hand throughout my whole story. Um, so I quit drinking once in 2019. I lasted about 14 months um, before I drank again and I ended up relapsing for about a year. It was a really, really terrible, awful year. Um, and then I quit again. 21 months ago. So um, it's it's different this time. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about what recovery is and what it means and what addiction is. And so I started kind of figuring out what my life needed to look like now. Um, so to, to kind of explain the all of that perfectionism and self-worth stuff, um, I'll start out by saying my parents are fantastic people who absolutely were doing the very best that they could with what they had and what they knew. And I think most of us as parents can generally say the same thing. Um, That said, no child leaves their childhood unscathed and untraumatized. And mine was certainly no exception. Um, 
so on paper, I had what would be considered a pretty perfect childhood, right? Um, we had the, the kids and the mom that stayed home and I had the dance classes and went to a private school and it was, it was beautiful and it was lovely. And um, my parents definitely loved me very much, but somewhere in all of that, I felt a lot of pressure to be the good one. I think part of that came from the fact that I was the only girl. Um, so I was very much doted upon and in that somehow I took from that the message that I needed to be good and do good and, you know, get the perfect grades and wear the perfect dress and have the perfect hair. And, um, and I did a really good job of it. And it started at a really young age. I remember being seven, eight years old and not getting a good grade on a test. And it just devastated me. Um, and that just continued. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was a perfect childhood on the outside. Um, but on the inside, I was getting a lot of messages that were just really unhealthy. And I think I spent a lot of time not feeling good enough. Um, and I think part of that was probably my personality mixed with my parents' personality. And that's just kind of what, what came of that. Um, then in my teenage years, my emotions hit. I think anybody listening to this can probably relate to just those those big, huge, heavy emotions that, that hit when we're teenagers, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. And I remember, you know, my first boyfriend broke up with me and it felt like the end of the world and my heart was broken. And, you know, when friends are mean to you in school and to me, that was just devastating. Um, and so I internalized a lot of the, you know, from the school stuff, I internalized a lot of the not good enough. And, um, and then a lot of the message that I got from my parents at that time was, you know, you're making too big of a deal out of it, or you're overreacting, or it's really not that bad, or, you know, you probably just need to get over this. And so, you know, if I was bullied at school, which happened a lot, um, it wasn't usually taken very seriously. I remember one time they went and talked to the principal, but for the most part, it was more, you know, you, you're probably just overreacting or this is just normal kid stuff. You need to get over it. Um, and so that's when I kind of started feeling like all of the things that I felt, all of those emotions were wrong or they were too much or I needed to somehow change them. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. I think that's something that a lot of, a lot of teenagers end up dealing with. Um, but yeah, so my emotions hit and they hit hard and I kept trying to stuff down all of those emotions and all of the sadness. And, um, I think we all know that with stuffing down emotions comes depression and anxiety and all of those other, um, mental illnesses that so many of us struggle with, me included. Um, and when I was 15 years old, I ended up essentially, I think I was, I was actually, I wrote it in a journal um, that I had some suicidal ideation and my parents found the journal and they panicked like any good loving parents would. Um, so the way they handled that was to 
send me to the psych ward at the local hospital where I was kept on like a 72 hour hold. And then they put me into a, um, like a adolescent treatment unit facility for several weeks where I was, you know, in group therapy and had counseling and they started trying, um, antidepressant medication and things like that. Um, I didn't really get anything out of the counseling. I didn't really get anything out of the group therapy. I don't know how much good the, um, the medication did, but I was still just not in a very good place. And so when the time came for me to leave the, the treatment unit, my parents were still really uncomfortable with me coming home. Um, and so I ended up being put into foster care for, I think it was several months, but I honestly don't remember. It's all such a blur now. It was a long time ago. Um, but somewhere in there, there was like this, this messaging that I feel like I got that I had to be good enough that I, or that I, I wasn't good enough. And so they didn't want me at home. Um, and looking back on that, I can completely understand that my parents were just terrified and they wanted nothing but for me to be safe at the time. That's not how I absorbed that at all. It was just a, um, we don't know what to do with you and you're not fitting into this mold that we have of the perfect daughter. And so we don't want you here. Um, and so that's kind of, that's all the messaging that I ended up carrying with me into adulthood. And I did a really good job of internalizing all of that and always striving to be good enough and to be perfect enough. And, um, and, and all of that comes from shame. And it took me, years and years to recognize that that's what that feeling is. It's shame. Um, the, the feeling not good enough, that there's something inherently wrong with me, that the things that I'm feeling are wrong. All of that stuff is just shame. Um, and so to try to make up for all of those feelings, I tried to be perfect and I, I did a really good job of it. Um, I did. I mean, it was, it was rough through those teen years and it was rough a little bit into my early twenties. Um, but I got married and got pregnant at 20 years old and that marriage was very short lived. It was not good. It was not healthy. Um, and so I wasn't married for, but a couple of years. Um, and then I met my now husband when I was 23 we got married and had one more kid and that, um, that messaging that I had carried with me that, you know, got to be perfect in order to be loved, just, just multiplied and magnified. And it was my whole life revolved around being the perfect wife and the perfect mom and, you know, doing everything above and beyond running myself ragged, running myself into the ground, trying to prove that I was enough, that I deserved these amazing children and this husband. And, um, and that's how I tried to do it was through all of the overachieving and all of the perfectionism, drowning all of that shame with a really pretty picture on the outside. You know, my Facebook posts were always so positive and wonderful and showing all of these things that I was doing. So everybody would know that I was good enough, but inside, of course, I didn't feel good enough for anything. Um, 
I was around 25 years old, 26 years old, shortly after my youngest was born, that I really started drinking. Um, I had had some drinks here and there throughout my teens and 20s. You know, I, I, I guess I kind of experimented with it the way most teenagers do, but it was never like a big part of my life. Um, I mean, I remember getting drunk for the first time when I was like 16 and I kind of hated it, honestly. Um, and it was, it was something that, you know, when I was in my, my later teens and early twenties, it was around a little bit, but it just wasn't a big part of my life. By that, by the time I turned 21, I already had one kid. Um, and so partying wasn't really a thing for me, but around 25, um, is when things, when it, when it really set in that I could drink and then I would feel like I could relax or I could, you know, be stressed out all day trying to be everything that I, I felt like I had to be. Um, and then I could drink and, and let things go. I could drink and be more fun. I could drink and be a more fun mom. I could drink and feel happier. I could, you know, if I was angry or if I was lonely, or if I was anything that didn't feel good, I could drink it away. And I never learned as a teenager, I never learned at any point in my adulthood, um, that negative emotions are okay. You're allowed to have them. You don't have to try to turn them off. Um, they will just go away on their own at some point when, when the time is right. And it sounds silly to say it now, but that's not something I ever learned. So when I realized I could drink and turn off emotions, that was like magic. And I, it did not take very long for that to turn into a problem. Um, my husband worked out of town for in 10 to 14 days at a time. So I was on my own with two little girls and I was often overwhelmed and, of course, pushing myself to be everything I felt like I had to be. And so it was really easy to drink. Um, and he didn't really question it. And then when my kids were four and eight, so I was just about 30 years old, um, we moved up here where I live now. So we moved up to, you know, from from the town that we lived in to a ranch about an hour away. Really, really small town. Um, and then I went from being, I, I, I already homeschooled my kids. So they never did go to school. I started homeschooling the oldest when she was five for kindergarten. That's all I've ever done. Um, and so I was already homeschooling my kids. And then we move up to this property that's 40 acres and we get a horse and then we get goats and then we get chickens. And then I have this big garden and all of this stuff, all of these things, um, and it was really overwhelming. It was a lot. And I loved it because it gave me the opportunity to prove even more how great I was. <laughs> and um, and so many more opportunities for perfectionism, which I thought was fulfilling. I thought that that made me feel good. Um, but all I was doing was just running myself ragged and be everything that I wasn't. Um it's definitely a very lonely place to live because it is a very small town. We we're very isolated. And then with my husband being gone all the time, the drinking ramped up even more. Um, and I remember, like, I've, I've looked back at journal entries. I've always been a big journaler. 
And I've looked back at journal entries from, you know, the first year or two that we lived here, writing about my drinking is getting out of control. I have to do something to stop this. But at that point, it never occurred to me that I was addicted to it. It was more just like, you know, I, I'm, I'm drinking because I have a reason to. I'm stressed out all the time. And, and drinking makes me, you know, happier at night with the kids and I, so I can play with them. And, um, and I was mostly only drinking at night. Very rarely did I drink during the day. But I would, you know, start drinking at dinner time. And then have another drink at, at bedtime when I read the kids their story. And then after the kids were in bed, um, I would usually have another drink or sometimes two. And so it, it kind of snuck up on me because I never felt like I was really getting drunk. Um, it was just enough to hold that buzz. And I always figured I could just stop whenever I wanted to. Um, and spoiler alert, I couldn't. Um, I realized at some point that it was getting to be really, really bad. I remember that I would be reading a story to my kids for bedtime. You know, we'd, we'd always read a story. I was reading Harry Potter and I opened the book and I started reading and one of my kids was like, mom, you read this chapter yesterday. And I had no recollection of it at all. Um, I had been, I, I don't know how much I had to drink, obviously too much. And I didn't remember even reading a story to them the night before. Or I remember reading stories to them and trying not to slur my words. And I mean, even like having to close one eye so that the words weren't blurry, so that I could focus on them to read. Um, and... I, there were times that we would be watching a movie together, the kids and I, my husband was gone, um, and I would get up and, you know, go in the closet for something, and I had alcohol stashed in the closet, or I would run downstairs to say I was going to fill my water glass, and then I would, um, you know, grab a drink down there, and it started out just being wine um, and beer, because, you know, that's more acceptable, I guess. At some point, it definitely switched more over to whiskey, um, and I would just run downstairs and fill up my water glass and then grab a swig out of the whiskey bottle um, and run back upstairs just so that I could keep watching the movie with them. And I remember like waking up in the morning and the TV was off and the lights had been turned off and one of my kids had taken my glasses off and set them on the bedside table. And I had just passed out drunk in bed watching a movie with them. Um, and so enough things like that happened that I realized that it was a very real problem. And so I started trying to quit. Um, and it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I, I never thought that I could become an alcoholic. Like I don't, my life doesn't look like an alcoholic's life, right? I mean, it's, it's a beautiful life. And here I was not able to quit drinking. Um, and I, I quit for like a couple months one time and I was like, okay, well, obviously I'm fine. I quit for a couple months and then I started drinking again. It took me another couple years to get any more time than that because I just didn't know how. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't talk to anybody about it. God forbid anybody know that I had a drinking problem. That was just like, you know, all that other shame from the feeling like I'm not good enough and, and all of that the shame was magnified a thousand times when I realized I actually had a drinking problem on top of everything else. Um, and so nobody knew that I had a problem. My husband never knew. I hid it from him, which was pretty easy to do um, because he was gone all the time. And then, you know, we'd have a bottle of wine. We'd share a bottle of wine at dinner. Um, and then I, I kept a stash of liquor somewhere, usually in my closet. 
And when he was outside doing something, I'd run inside and take a couple swigs out of the whiskey bottle um, and just maintain that buzz all the time, but, but never enough to be so drunk that he actually knew. Um, so whenever I did try to quit, I didn't have any kind of support or help. I just did. I tried to do it alone. And then there was the, what's wrong with me? Why can't I figure this out? And then there's even more shame. <laughs> um, and I just, I was so good at piling shame on top of shame on top of shame. Um, and it just held me down. And so in 2019, I was day drinking. I had a box of wine on the counter and I would just go fill my glass um, every time I walked by. I was kind of one of those, if I never let the glass get empty and I just kept it full, then I wouldn't have any idea how much I had drank. Um, And I spent a couple of weeks like that. You know, I want to say it was all just normal stress. I don't remember anything seriously triggering that happened to really ramp that up. But over the course of two or three weeks, I started drinking all day long. And I would, you know, take naps in the middle of the afternoon while the kids were out doing whatever kids do on a farm and try to sleep off the morning drinking so that I could drink again that night. And finally one day... Um, I just knew I had to quit. I I was talking to my grandmother and I was crying on the phone to her and I told her I have to quit drinking. It was the first time I'd told anybody. And she was wonderful. And she was like, she was really supportive. And it was just like, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do to help you. And um, after I got off the phone with her, I called my husband and I just told him I have to quit drinking. And he was like, okay. And I never said anything more to anybody after those two people um, and I stopped drinking for 14 months. Um, I never went to meetings. I live, I live in a very small town. So Alcoholics Anonymous is definitely not anonymous. Um, I was running a 4-H club. Um, I was, you know, on different boards in town. Everybody knew who I was. So having my car parked outside of the clinic on a Friday night wasn't an option. And... I had no idea there were any other options. Like AA is the only thing anybody ever really hears about. So I just stayed sober on my own for a little bit over a year. Um, And it was, I mean, it was, especially the first couple of months were so hard. And I just remember crying so much and just wanting to drink and not drinking. And I mean, I just white knuckled it through the first couple of months. Um, And it got a little bit easier because it just, it just gets easier. But I never coped with anything. I never learned how to process any of my emotions. So I'm still feeling all of these big emotions, still have no idea how to deal with them. And not learning any of that, I would just white knuckle it through the really hard times and then I would be okay for a while. Um, And then after about 14 months, I just had a bad day. I don't even remember what happened. And I decided I was going to have a beer and there were beer and beers in the fridge because my husband, you know, he's very much a normal drinker. I laugh because I'm like, he can buy a six pack and it can last him two weeks. I don't understand that. Um, But he would, you know, he left a couple of beers in the refrigerator when he had gone to work and that had never been an issue in that whole 14 months. Um, But I knew they were there. And so that day I just decided I'm going to go drink a beer because I'm having a really crappy day. And I did. I went and I got the beer and I chugged it. And I felt better immediately. Um, And I told my husband, I was like, I just had a beer. I had a really bad day. And he's like, cool. How do you feel? He never realized that I had a problem. He just thought I was like 
quitting for health reasons or something. And I was like, it was great. And then in my mind, I was like, oh, good. I'm fixed. I'm all better. Um, And I wasn't all better because that's not how addiction works. And so I did a good job of moderating for about six months. Um, So I would... I, I did the thing that alcoholics do where I would set all these rules for myself, you know, no more than, than two drinks on a weeknight or I'm only going to drink on weekends and I'm not going to have more than three or I'll only drink light beer. I won't drink, you know, hard liquor or whatever it was. I had all these rules and I mostly followed them. It was exhausting and it was hard and I always wanted more, but I, for the most part, tried to prove to myself that I could moderate um, my drinking. And so six months into that relapse, my whole world got shaken up um, in a pretty traumatizing way. Um, It was just a normal day. And my oldest was was somewhere else for the week. She was house sitting, I think. She wasn't home. And my youngest was, she must have been 14 years old. Um, 13 or 14 and we had just been playing the whole, playing board games the whole day we were you know we were just getting ready to make pancakes for dinner and my husband called me from work he was out of town and told me that my neighbor had shot my dog um it's this dog I won't go into detail but I rescued this dog and she was four years old and she was my heart and soul and my very best friend and you know when you have teenagers it's really helpful to have a dog because they are always happy to see you um <laughs> and she was she was a huge and very important part of my life and my neighbor shot her and that moment all I wanted was to get drunk as drunk as I could possibly get I wanted to not feel whatever that feeling was because I had no idea what to do with it or how to deal with it and so I went to the liquor store and I bought a bottle of whiskey and I drank it and then I went back to the liquor store and I bought another bottle of whiskey and I drank about half of that um and that started the next six months of just just solid drinking I was just I, I had no desire to even try to moderate, try to stay sober. I was feeling so much emotional pain that and, and trauma. I mean, it happened in such a traumatic way. Um, and I didn't know how to cope with anything like that. I had no idea. I didn't know how to talk to anybody about what I was feeling. None of that. So I just needed to make it stop. Um, and what I learned from that experience looking back on it now is that you know that that moderation voice loves to come come up for people who have quit drinking after they've been sober for a while it's really easy for that voice that 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 addict voice in the back of your head to be like see look you're fine you can drink a little bit it won't hurt anything and so many people give into that voice and I managed to moderate for six months Um, but as soon as life happened and life will always happen because alcohol was on the table as an option for coping, that's what I turned to first. And it took 24 hours for that to completely take hold of my life and take over my life. Um, I don't really remember very much of that six months that I drank away. Um, I just remember 
constantly trying to hide how much alcohol I was buying. I would try to buy alcohol at the grocery store. So my husband wouldn't see, you know, the, the credit card bill at the liquor store. And I, you know, had alcohol in my car and I had alcohol in my closet and I had alcohol in the basement and, you know, all these different places where it was hidden. So I could just keep drinking it and nobody would know. Um, and that all ended after about six months when I got into a pretty brutal argument with my oldest um, and decided I was going to go for a drive and I was nowhere near sober. I had been drinking whiskey out of a bottle all day long that day and I went for a drive and I was angry and I was driving way too fast and um, managed to run my car into a fence and total it. Um, and, you know, I remember on that drive, like, I knew I was going to wreck my car, and I almost wanted to because I wanted somebody to finally fucking realize how much I was hurting and how impossible it was to stop the madness. Um, and so I wrecked my car. I wasn't even a mile away from my house. Um, and, and we're talking like, like back country dirt roads, right? Like I'm not out on a highway or anything. I'm on, I don't think I passed a single person while I was out there. Um, just to kind of give you a, a picture of what that looks like. I was just out driving back country dirt roads, went around a corner and, um, and ran into a fence. And I called my husband and told him I just wrecked the car. Um, and he came and had my oldest with him and I lost it on the side of the road in a drunken rage. It was terrible. Um, and, and it's like so hard to talk about this even now, even though I've told this story before, um, because there's still so much just sadness and shame and all of that in there. Um, I said terrible things to my daughter, um, things that I would do anything in the entire world to take back. And, um, Anyway, they um, they kind of situated stuff with the car, got it off the road at least, and, and I came home and passed out, and I woke up, and, um, and my husband had to go back to work, and I was on my own to figure it out from there. Um, and I managed to go like two weeks without drinking at that point. I mean, I would consider that my rock bottom, right? And and after two weeks, that moderation voice just came right back and is like, "What? Well, you're, you're fine now. You learned your lesson. You can drink again. Just don't drink so much. And, you know, and so I still drank for another month and a half after that moment, two months, something like that. Um, not heavily, but, but I was still drinking a little bit here and there. Um, and I just couldn't get through more than three or four or five days without drinking. I didn't know how, how you were supposed to do that. Um, and I had done it once and the second time was so much harder. Like, and there's that part of me that's like, you already did this once. What's wrong with you? Why can't you figure this out? And so then you've just got, you know, again, more shame piled on top of it all. Um, and so when I, after I wrecked my car, I downloaded this app on my phone. It's called I Am Sober. And it's just a free like day counter app to help you see how many days you've been sober. And, you know, when you hit the, um, 
the five days milestone, it gives you a little, you know, yeah, you hit a milestone or, or when you hit a week or 10 days or whatever it was. And so I downloaded that app on my phone. Um, and I was looking, I, it was maybe 10 o'clock in the morning and I was already three or four beers in. Um, and I was looking at that app and there's a community button. So I hit the community button. I was like, what on earth is this? And, um, it turns out there were thousands and thousands of people on that app that would write just little bits of their life each day about what they were going through. Some of them, you know, I mean, it's anywhere from day zero to, to 10 years sober, um, and beyond. And I could sit there and read all these little snippets of people's lives and realize how very alone I wasn't for the very first time. There were all of these normal people just like me who were also going through all of the same things that I was going through. And, um, one of the pictures on that app, you know, you can post a picture when you post, when you make a post on there. And one of the pictures was actually advertising meetings on zoom for people that were trying to quit drinking. Um, and I was so desperate at that moment that, and, and the meeting was happening like 15 or 20 minutes from when I saw it. So I actually joined the zoom meeting. Um, and I kept my camera off and I kept my microphone off and I just, saw this this zoom meeting full of probably 20 people um and like my life changed at that moment there were i i always imagined that an alcoholic was like you know the homeless guy under the bridge um and or you know the the mom that loses her kids or whatever like you have this picture in your mind of what an alcoholic looks like and i always thought that that's what alcoholics looked like and that i was just different um and I, I go to this meeting and I see all of these people and they're just normal people with jobs and families and living normal lives who are also fighting an addiction. Um, and the thing that kind of blew me away about them all is that they were all happy and they were all smiling and they were all, you know, hey, how are your kids or how did this, you know, the, the job thing go last week? And they're just having like normal people conversation while they were waiting for the meeting to start. And um, I think at that moment, I just realized that I was going to be OK. I, I got so much hope just from listening to these other people talk. Um about their experiences and, you know, and the meeting starts and they introduce a topic and, and then you go into little breakout rooms and talk about the topic for a while. And so what I heard was people talking honestly and vulnerably about their real lives, which was something I had never experienced before. The idea of vulnerability to me was terrifying, if not just impossible. Um, one of the things that I did do the first time I quit drinking was start reading Brene Brown books. And um, obviously she's a shame researcher. I'm sure most people have, have heard of her, at least if not read her books. But she talks about shame and then she talks about um, the way to overcome shame. And that means, you know, authenticity, being your authentic self. And that means connection with other people. And I was like, yes, I can get on board with this. I want to be authentic. I want to connect with other people. And then she's like, and to connect with other people, you have to be vulnerable. And I was like, no, no, I'm good. <laughs> like, like that, that's not for me. I'll do the authenticity thing. That vulnerability thing is not going to work for me. Um, 
But what I saw in these meetings was people actually opening up and being honest and vulnerable and real and raw about what life was really like and about, um, about their shame and about the emotions that they didn't know how to feel. And it was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. I had never even had a close enough friend to talk about the real stuff with everything in my life was on the surface. Um, and so it took me a while, like a few meetings to turn my camera on and turn my mic on and actually participate in those meetings. But I finally did. Um, and I started talking about all of the things that I was struggling with. Um, and I learned that the way to overcome shame is to shine a light on it. So when I started talking about my addiction, I started talking about alcoholism, when I started talking about um, wrecking my car and all of those other things, not remembering the stories or passing out or whatever it was, when I started talking about those things to other people who understood the shame started lifting and it became something that I could, I could start overcoming. Um, so I still didn't tell anybody for a really long time, but maybe six months in, um, I started talking about it a little bit more openly with people. Um, a few friends, knew at that point that I had quit drinking and that I kind of had a problem. I wasn't real honest, but I was honest enough to, to start talking about it. Um, and I started sharing with other people, you know, in the, in the, I am sober community and, um, and just talking to them and giving other people a place to share also. Um, and eventually that, I don't know, that, that ended up being the most healing thing for me was talking about it and being honest about it and being real about it and letting other people see me for who I really was. Um, because up until then, nobody was ever going to see me who for, who, for who I really was. I wasn't going to let anybody see the real me and like my mistakes and my flaws and all of my imperfections and, you know. Um, and once I started actually showing up authentically and really being okay with who I was, that made me a lot more comfortable with the fact that I was also an addict. Um, and so I started talking about it more openly on podcasts and eventually started a podcast of my own um, through the Glass Recovery Podcast. That's with Steve, who was here um, a few weeks ago. And we started sharing our stories with with the whole world. Um, we started posting on Instagram and that was the first time that I actually posted, you know, the word alcoholic with a picture of my face for the whole world to see. And it was terrifying and also so liberating and so freeing to just own it and be okay with it. Um, I remember somebody told me early on, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just a normal person who became addicted to an addictive substance. And that helped me so much when it came to, to not feeling so bad about the fact that I became an alcoholic. Like it, it, it is, it's an addictive substance. That's what it's supposed to do. You're supposed to get addicted to it. And I did. Um, 
That doesn't make me a bad person. That doesn't make me a failure. That doesn't make me any of those things that I thought I was. And getting out from underneath all of those thoughts and all of that shame made me just want to help other people find their way out of it too. Um, so yeah, I started making reels on Instagram about, you know, things that I've learned over the course of, of the last couple of years and, um, and, and the podcast. And, um, since then we've started recovering meetings where we have zoom meetings, just like the one that saved my life. Um, that, you know, we've, we've opened up to people, not just from the app that we were on, but to anybody who's interested and who just needs some support. Um, and so we host those once a week now, and then that went on to becoming a recovery coach. I got, um, I went through the, um, recovery coaching courses so that I could start helping other people in, in, and learning how to do that in the, in the best possible ways. Um, and yeah, so I mean, start to finish, that is, <laughs> that is basically my story. I don't think I've ever actually told that story start to finish like that before. So, but, but yeah, there there you have it. Well, I wanted to say thank you again. <laughs> I know I already thanked you for being a guest earlier, but I wanted to thank you again just for sharing your story. I know, I mean, with mental health and, and, and trauma, there's a big, there's a big stigma and there's a lot of stereotypes, but then you throw in addiction and I feel like there's a whole new, I guess, set of stigmas yeah. and, and judgments and labels. And it just, it, it, it just clouds people's perspective and the way they see those that are struggling with addiction. So I just wanted to thank you again for being open and and vulnerable to share that story. I know it was probably a difficult one, especially with the car accident um, incident. So firstly, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And secondly, I am super inspired by both you and Steve. Um, for anybody that's been listening for a little while now, Steve actually did an episode and I think his is titled I Am Recovering. So go check his out as well. Um, but also, I, I just, I'm super inspired by both of you for for being able to, to turn your struggle and your hurt and your pain and your addiction into something that is both real and vulnerable, but also in a positive light that actually helps people and in, in turn, obviously helps yourself as well. But I just think it's so inspiring that, that's the route that you both took. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't be here without all of the amazing people that did this before me. Um, and I'm just so grateful that I managed to find everything that I needed to finally dig my way out of where I was. And yeah, I just, hopefully I can help other people realize that it is possible even when it feels like it's not. Are you ready for questions? Absolutely. <laughs> I, so I've wrote down a couple of questions, but you were just on a roll and as weird as it sounds, your voice is really soothing. And I was like, <laughs> man, she's on a roll. I don't want to stop her. <laughs> I get told that so often. And it's so funny to me because when I first started podcasting, I could not stand to listen to the sound of my own voice. Um, that's so funny. I've had so many people tell me that it's soothing. So thank you. I appreciate that. 
Well, that makes me feel a little less weird saying that to you because <laughs> I don't know you super well, <laughs> but I'm glad. Um, and that just makes the podcast probably that much more enjoyable to listen to because your voice is soothing. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so I wanted to take like a hundred steps back to when you first got married or sorry, when you got married for the second time uh-huh. and with your second baby, what did your parenting your specifically your parenting style look like and the messages you were trying to give your daughters compared to what you received as a child ooh um so being perfectly honest this is actually probably one of my greatest regrets in life and um that is that i pretty much raised my kids with the same perfectionism that i was raised with um because I never knew any better. So when I say, you know, looking back at my childhood, I was raised with these messages of perfectionism and you have to be good enough and all of that. I didn't recognize any of that until I got sober. So I went through the first 39 years of my life just trying to be good enough and just trying to be perfect and thinking that that's what you're supposed to do. And so I very much raised my kids with that same messaging um, because I, I just didn't know any different. So like, I wish that I could tell you that I was, you know, warm and encouraging and, and just loving and um, accepted them for their flaws. And, and I mean, I did accept them for their flaws, but I was definitely more critical then I, I wish I would have been because that's all I knew. Um, so let's put a spin on it then. Sure. How did you, if you did, change any parenting or your techniques or conversations or messages or anything like that upon sobriety and recovery? Um, so... <laughs> Really great question. Um, my oldest does not live at home and left on not good terms. And we really don't talk, which is, um, as a mom, the most heartbreaking thing I have ever experienced. So um, I can answer that question when it comes to my youngest. Um, we have a really a real relationship now for the first time ever. Um once I realized what vulnerability looked like, I started modeling that a little bit, obviously within reason. My kid doesn't need to know every little detail of what I'm experiencing, but I started sharing some of my insecurities and I started, you know, sharing thoughts that I had or feelings that I had that, that were okay. I mean, she's, she's 15 now. So just to put, give you an idea, you know, she's, she's mid teens now. Um, and I think that gave her the space to do the same thing. So she shares a lot with me um, and not everything. She's a teenager. There are some things that I will never know, but, um, but, but we have a relationship now. Sometimes I feel like, like when, when you are a teenager and you don't get all of those important messages, like it's okay to have emotions and here's, you know, healthy ways to deal with emotions. And then you just start drinking them away. 
so for me, I'm, it's like I'm 15 again sometimes. And there are times that it almost feels like I am going through all of those normal learning processes with her at the same time, um, which in some ways is really special and in some ways makes me really sad that I can't do better for her, that I have to learn alongside her. Um, but, I mean, she knows that that's where I'm at. She, she, she's very well-versed in what addiction and alcoholism looks like. We're, we talk about it very honestly. Um, and she knows that that's kind of where I'm at sometimes. Sometimes I'm feeling something really big and I really don't know what to do with it right now. And, and I'm having to work through it. And so it's just made that okay for her to kind of do the same thing and be accepted for it instead of being told, hey, you need to turn that off, you know, you're overreacting or, or whatever those things are. You know, when she went through her first heartbreak, um, I was able to show up for her and, and honor the fact that that is the worst heartbreak she had ever felt in her life and that it is very real and that it's okay to be very upset. So I'm definitely now the parent that I wish that I would have had and the parent that I wish that I could have been for my kids. Um, and there's a lot of living with a lot of that regret. And then trying to remember that at least I'm doing the best with what I have now going forward. It, it makes me really happy to hear the relationship with your youngest and specifically, I mean, obviously that you, you have that relationship now and you're open and you're real and you're raw and you're just telling her how it is essentially. Uh-huh. But I really enjoy the fact that you, or what sounds like to me anyways, that you have open conversations about addiction and alcoholism and probably somewhere in their mental health struggles. Absolutely. I, I just, I really respect and appreciate that because I feel like in previous generations and even in my childhood, it was not talked about and I'm late 20s now, so I feel like up until the last maybe five, six years, it hasn't really been a, a conversation. Right. And so I just, I really respect that you are opening those doors for that conversation for our younger generation and for those that are going to grow up basically supporting the world when it comes to mental health. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I just, I mean, I struggled so much with, with depression and anxiety as a kid, but it was never something we talked about. It was never something my parents would actually, you know, say those words really. Um, and, you know, I was on antidepressants and it was like, it felt like it was embarrassing. Um, and they didn't do anything to alleviate that embarrassment. And it's just so important. I never want my kids to feel like they can't ask for help or that they need to be ashamed of the way that they're feeling or the things that are going on inside their hearts and in their heads so if if we can talk about it now you know god forbid one of my kids end up addicted to something i would rather them not be drowning in shame about it and i would rather them just ask for the help that they need i feel like i can relate to what you mentioned about experiencing the anxiety and depression in your childhood and your parents not alleviating that almost shame and embarrassment of it i remember not knowing what it was because it wasn't talked about then. But I remember as young as like grade two, grade three, experiencing like extreme worry and like constant anxiety, but just thinking it was normal because I didn't know any different. 
Right. And then I remember being medicated for the first time. Uh, I probably would have been like 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. And it was just very hush hush. Like my mom knew. I don't even know if my dad knew. And like, wow. I just, it, it was very hush hush in the family. So I definitely can relate to that. And I think that's also partly the inner child of me really appreciates that you're teaching your child the opposite. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's it, in a way it's also healing for me mm-hmm. to teach her the opposite. It's crazy. All of the things that we were told to keep quiet or that we, you know, received the message that we had to keep quiet or that nobody talked about, you know, like the, the one uncle with the alcohol problem, we're just not going to talk about him. All that does is just tell you, you should be ashamed of that. You mm-hmm. know, that's something to be ashamed of. And that it, it's, just talking about everything just shines a light on all of it and makes it something that can actually be dealt with. That is so true. I remember a family, it was either a family reunion or family dinner, like, oh, I think it was maybe just when the COVID pandemic or whatever was starting to not be a thing. Mm -hmm. So maybe last year or the year before, but I remember sitting at the table and listening to family talk about an uncle Mm-hmm. who I had no idea struggled with alcoholism but now that I hear them actually say that's what it is it makes total sense but it's it's just another example of you know struggle alone don't share the struggle don't right. show it don't talk about it but in reality that's what we should be doing Right. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. Struggle alone, right? If it's something that you, that shouldn't be talked about, you just go ahead and deal with that by yourself. Um, and then we all think we're alone. So for me, once I finally showed up in the recovery community and I realized I wasn't alone, it was just life-changing. And I think it's that way with, with addiction or with, with mental health or whatever it is. Once we realize there's other people out there struggling too, it makes it something that we can like band together and support each other to get through and to, to understand and to heal from, but we're all told to suffer alone. Um, And it's just heartbreaking that that's, that that's how it's been for so very long. I really enjoy kind of being a young adult, I guess, if you will, um, in this, this time zone where not time zone time period, (laughs) maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, where I can actually start to be the face of in an ideal world, seeing those changes slowly start. Yes. Because it, it, I think if anything, anxiety and depression and just addiction and mental health as a whole are even more prominent now. Or, or maybe it's just because people are actually talking about it that it seems more prominent. But I feel right. like to, to kind of be the face of that for others, just like you're the face for recovery for some, mm-hmm. I think it's just so important. It is. It's important and it's exciting and it feels good mm-hmm. to be that. Like, I know I, I'm certain my parents especially aren't particularly excited about the fact that their daughter is gallivanting all over social media talking about when she was addicted to alcohol um but it just feels so good to be that face and to 
make it okay for other people to ask for help or to talk about it or whatever it is. Like it, it's an honor to be a part of this movement. Absolutely. I feel like it also goes kind of back to what you said about Brene Brown, Brene Brown. Her name is a mouthful. But I think it goes back to what you said about her and how she speaks of, you know, shame and guilt and vulnerability. And in order to, to work through those things, you need to be your authentic self, which means you need to be vulnerable. I feel like it's, it's obviously a cycle and it's so worth it to, to go through the cycle and kind of come out on the other side in a more positive light. Absolutely. But I feel like what you're doing for your community and for our community as a whole is exactly what Brene Brown writes in her books. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you're right. It's a, it's a process to go through all of that. Um, <laughs> it's an, I think it's a never ending process. I feel like it's a lifelong learning experience to become authentic when we've spent so long not being authentic. But, um, but the more of us that talk about it, just like you're doing here and, and what Steve and I do, the more we make it okay and the more we make it a little bit less terrifying for other people. And yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to be a part of. Can you speak to any of the, I guess, recovery techniques, if that's the right word? in terms of how you continue to support yourself daily or weekly or monthly or yearly and just the things that you do to continue that recovery and the mindset. I know obviously the through the glass recovery podcast and meetings are huge, but is there anything else that you've been kind of included in your life that you find is significant for the recovery? Yeah. Um, so I never did any formal recovery program. I never did AA or smart recovery. There's so many amazing programs out there. I didn't actually use any of those. I just kind of worked my way through it on my own. I did start out the very beginning of my, um, recovery using a book called rewired by Erica Spiegelman and, that to me started the ball rolling as far as what recovery needed to look like. And, you know, it, it digs into that authenticity piece and the honesty and, and all of that. Um, now, like, like on a day-to-day basis nowadays, I, I still keep a lot of those habits that I started early on. I still get up early in the morning. I still journal every day. I still, I keep in touch with people in the recovery community every day. I have a few really close friends that um, I talk to about anything that comes up, like anything, you know, it's really hard and really rare, I think, to to have friends that you can just say anything to, and they're going to listen to you, and they're going to validate what you're feeling, and they're going to share their perspective, and to me, that has been absolutely key in in moving forward in my recovery. Um, and just so much, I think, developing self-awareness, that's primarily journaling for me, understanding what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, why I'm feeling it and thinking it, and um, and learning healthy emotional skills, like communicating like an adult. Turns out that's really important. Um, and I never learned how. 
And, and that's even shame-based, you know, God forbid you say something somebody didn't want to hear. Turns out you kind of have to, if you're going to communicate like a grown-up. Um, so just little things like that. It's like a daily practice. And the only way to do most of that is just to let life happen as it does. So I just, you know, I go through my life and I live it and things happen and I learn how to react in a healthier way or respond in a healthier way um, or process it and think about it in a more positive light or, or all of these little pieces. They're like all of these little pieces that come up just in life that um, I just try to be really aware of in order to keep the like the forward momentum going. And I, I feel like this is kind of a burning question for me. Okay. <laughs> how is, how has been, or is the support of the, of your husband now in knowing all the things? Um, he's super supportive. Um, he doesn't understand what addiction feels like or what it really means. Um, I, it took me some months at least two or three months, maybe four, to really be honest about addiction. Like, like I am addicted to alcohol and how hard it was for me to stop drinking and, and still was at that point, three or four months, you know, you're still fighting a daily battle. Um, he's very supportive. I, he's, he's happy that I've quit. He has said before, like, I'm, he, I think he feels like I'm not as much fun, um, because I'm no longer like the drunk girl at the party. Um, which is fair. That is true. And, you know, a lot of our stuff revolved around drinking. So we would go out, you know, to breweries or go out to the bar and things like that. If, if we ever did have a date night, which wasn't real common, that stuff's no longer an option anymore. It's been a major adjustment period. Um, and also just a, once I stopped trying to be perfect, um, I became a very different person. So I'm no longer running around like a chicken with my head cut off, trying to be the perfect wife. I'm just being a wife that I think is a good wife. Um, and there's an adjustment in there. And yeah, it's it's been a really rough and rocky road, but he's never not been supportive of me and my recovery and even recovering out loud you know posting things publicly being really open and honest about it he's he's always been supportive of that I just had a question and it's gone <laughs> poof <laughs> hey when that happens I mean it happens often for me <laughs> <laughs> but I am very happy to hear that I've heard a lot of stories where the the partner or the spouse or friend or whatever the situation looks like kind of up and left the entire equation completely so I'm really happy to hear that there is lots of support there for you and my question came back okay (laughs) so I know you had mentioned when you used to go on date nights with your husband that you would do brewery tours or things that kind of involved a drink or alcohol or kind of a mix. Mm -hmm. Do you, and if you do, how do you cope with potential triggers? Ooh. um, I don't, I honestly, I don't really feel triggers like, like seeing alcohol or being around alcohol that really doesn't trigger me anymore. Um, 
how long did it take to not become a triggering environment? Honestly, not that long once I really started the process of recovery. So there's a very big difference between sobriety and recovery. Um, sobriety is what I did for those first 14 months. And at, at that time, I was just white knuckling it through everything. I don't even have a way to tell you how I coped with those triggering situations other than just I gritted my teeth and, you know, forced my way through it sober. Um, this second time around, it really, there haven't been moments like that that have really been triggering. Um And I think a lot of that is just understanding all of the damage that alcohol did and really wanting nothing to do with it anymore. And, you know, I'm in the beginning, like the first couple of months, I remember like going out to dinner and, you know, it'd be a place where normally we'd order margaritas and I just had like a lemonade. And there was kind of that wistfulness or like a nostalgia kind of feeling Mm -hmm. um, that I just kind of like honored, like that's okay to, to miss it. Um, it still doesn't get to have a place in my life now. Like my relationship with alcohol got spoiled. It's never going to get good again. And I know that. So I guess I, I just don't have any like, like sensory triggers that way. I can, I can be around alcohol and it just doesn't affect me. And I don't really want anything to do with it. Um, Emotional triggers were a different story. And that's, you know, when you, you feel intense emotions and just want to shut them off. Um, and that has been very much like just the, it goes back to all of the tools that you learn when you first stop drinking, you know, show up at a meeting and talk about what you're feeling or call a friend or journal through it or, you know, go for a long walk and just distract yourself or eat some sugar because it will probably satisfy that craving a little bit. Or like there's just so many little tools that you learn early on and those still come into play. I still had a situation actually um, a few weeks ago now where my daughter's horse was really sick and we actually weren't really sure if he was going to live. And I don't want to say that I had a craving because I never like felt like, oh my gosh, I need a drink. That never went through my head. But there was very much that I wish I could drink this away feeling. And um, like like really briefly, I, I went, I was in, in the car by myself for a few minutes and it went through my head like, you know, you, you have your purse with you, you have cash with you, you could buy some alcohol, nobody would even know, and you could go drink and not have to feel the way you feel right now. And I mean, as fast as that thought came into my head, it left. But the first thing I did was call somebody and tell them that that's the thought that I had. Um, and that's just one of the things you learn early on is every time you have a thought like that, you talk to somebody and tell them, because as soon as you share that, it loses a lot of power. Um and again, like I, it, it, that wasn't like a craving, like a, you know, have to fight my way through it craving. I don't think I've had a craving like that in probably over a year. Um, but I mean, the thoughts still pop up every once in a while, that little voice that's like, ooh, ooh, maybe you can moderate. <laughs> and you're like, we've had this conversation, but, um, but they still just come and go. I guess that kind of leads into a segue of having any you know, words of wisdom or words of encouragement or I know you just mentioned quite a handful of like tips and tricks, but do you have anything else that you would like to share for for anybody that's either maybe active addiction and 
trying to pull themselves out of that dark hole into recovery or who are in recovery and want to continue recovery. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll share a few thoughts. Um, quitting drinking is probably going to be the hardest thing that you will ever do, but it will be worth it. Don't wait for it to get easy. It's not going to get easy. Just know that you're strong enough to do it. Um, it's okay to be uncomfortable. It took me a long time to realize that I can be uncomfortable. You will survive uncomfortable. You might not survive drinking. And there are so many different pathways to sobriety and to recovery. Try one if it doesn't fit. Try a new one. And keep trying different things until you figure out what really resonates with you. There's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, And then lastly, set this shame aside long enough to reach out. Recovery becomes possible when you let someone in enough to walk alongside you. It sounds cliche, and I fought it for way too long, but connection really is the opposite of addiction, and recovery doesn't happen alone. I feel like those are all very powerful, and I think we might end the conversation with those powerful thoughts. All right. (laughs) Perfect. Before we wrap up, though, Julie, is there a way that any listeners can follow you and or Steve through the recovery journey? Yeah, absolutely. So we, Steve and I co-host Through the Glass Recovery Podcast, which can be found on any listening platform. And we also have a website, throughtheglassrecovery.com. Um, We host meetings on Monday nights at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And they're, like I said earlier, just like the meetings that saved my life. Um, They're open to anybody. You can show up with your camera off and your mic off and just listen, just like I did. And um, if you want more information about those meetings, you can go to our website, throughtheglassrecovery.com. And there's a place to put in your email address. We'll email you the information so that you can join us. It's a really simple Zoom link. Um, and then on every social media platform that I can think of, we can be found at Through the Glass Recovery. Amazing. Well, I wanted to thank you again, Julie, for a couple things. One, just being a guest and for being open and continu- continuing the conversation with me. Two, just for being who you are and kind of radiating the positivity. I can feel your energy and your vibes <laughs> through my earphones. <laughs> and three, just thank you for the work that you do. I think it's so crucial to recovery and just the journey itself. And just like you said, connection is everything. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for the opportunity.